Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119 and verse 105. We'll be reading verses 105 to 12. Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. O accept the free will offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. Our Heavenly Father, we know that this is your word, and we thank you that it is a light to us. Help us to understand our need for this light, to guide us and to show us the way, the way until the very end, until we meet you face to face. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, for David to express that the Word of God is a light in the first verse, in verse 105, for him to express that the Word of God is a lamp and a light, this assumes that David understands because he is a believer. This assumes that David understands that he was humbled and he is in a humble state so that he is teachable and willing to hear and to see what God has to say. This is the way in which he's living his life now. But he's living this life in the midst of darkness. He used to live in darkness himself personally, but still the world all around him is dark. The world all around him is overwhelmingly dark. It's a thick darkness that's all around him, and he needs to have guidance, and he needs to have a pilot. He needs to have a pilot light that shows the way so that he is sure of the way he should go. Well, it is this Word of God that he trusts. He trusted this Word of God upon his conversion, but he also trusts this Word of God to continue to guide him through life until he sees the Lord face to face. This is the, the kind of mind we ought to have. This is the mind we have to have that the Bible is our light in the midst of the dark world in which we live. The Bible tells us that our world is dark that we should not be sons of darkness, that we should be sons of light, that we should not be walking in the deeds of darkness, but into the path of light, or in the highway of holiness. We used to walk and, and run in the highway of wickedness, the highway of evil, but now we are on the highway of holiness. And on this highway, we need a brilliant light to guide us and show us the way. That's what David, the man of God, the prophet of God, he understands this truth. We also need to understand this truth. In the first verse when he says that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, he knows that he has to continue living his life in this world, but he does not seek a light from any other quarter. Notice this. He does not say your word plus man's word your word plus my own mind, your word plus the world, your world plus anything else. It's not your word plus anything. It's simply God's word. It's his word in the Bible. Nothing that he needs is, 
anywhere else but here in the Bible. This is a problem that we face today. It is very easy for us to listen to our friends. It is very easy to us to just to go to the computer or to our phones and, seek to, and, and search for what people are saying about how we ought to live our life instead of going to the Bible. Instead of having as our natural reaction now upon our conversion, now that we have a new heart, now that our eyes have been opened up, now that we have seen the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ, in the gospel of Christ, now that we have seen this, we should have as our first reaction, whenever we hear anything, whenever we read anything, whenever somebody's advising us, we should have the Bible as our source. It doesn't matter who it is who's teaching us. doesn't matter who is telling us. We ought to say, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible actually say that? So-and-so made reference to the Bible. So-and-so alluded to the Bible. But is that exactly what the Bible says? Let me go back to the Bible. Let me find that reference. Let me find that verse. Let me find that allusion that was made to the Bible. And when I find that it's in the Bible, then I will believe it. Then I will obey it. That's what we should do. Instead, what we have going on all around us is an influence and commotion. We have this cacophony of voices shouting and screaming and calling for our attention and telling us, follow this or follow that. This book, this article, this preacher, this pastor, this politician, this philosophy, this psychologist, this sociologist, this economist, this political scientist. Whatever it is, we have people shouting at us and telling us this is the right way or that is the right way. But what we need to do is back off. We need to practice some restraint, some self-control and say, what does God's word have to say? Because God's word alone is a lamp. God's word alone is a light. So to the extent that somebody advises us and tells us that in reference to psychology, in reference to sociology, in reference to government, in reference to food, in reference to clothing, in reference to anything in the values that I should have in my life, anything, we ought to ask, does it conform to Scripture? If it conforms to Scripture, then we should obey it. Then we should believe it. If it does not conform to Scripture, we should reject it. Now, we have to take precautions with this approach. The, the precaution we have to take is that many people say, especially people in churches say, oh, no, 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 what I'm suggesting to you does not contradict the Bible. Oh, no, I would never do that. I would never say anything to trip you up. I would never say anything that would be what Jesus would not do. I would always tell you what Jesus would do. This is, this is what often happens when people give advice. Christians and pastors, ministers of the gospel, will often say, no, 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 what I'm asking you to do, what I'm expecting you to do, conforms to the Bible. But that's when we have to have some discernment. We have to go to Scripture. We have to ask the question, does the Bible say it? Does the Bible say it as it was told to me? And if it does, if it does conform to that, then fine. Believe it and obey it. But if it does not, reject it. Reject it completely. Verse 106. I have sworn, and I will confirm it, that I will keep your righteous ordinances. 
He calls them the righteous ordinances or words of God. An ordinance or a regulation, a law, is that which is legal. He understands that he used to be a wicked man who transgressed the laws of God, the ordinances of God. But now he is righteous because he considers God's word to be righteous. Therefore, he wants to walk on that path of righteousness. He's speaking and implying that he used to be wicked, but now he's righteous and he considers God's word righteous. See here in verse 106, he says, I have sworn and will confirm it to keep the words of God. When he was converted, he, as we might say, he made a commitment. But it was more than merely a commitment. He made a solemn oath, a vow to God. When he swore to God, it does not mean he used profanity. Not in that sense did he swear. He swore in the sense that he swore an oath. He had a solemn vow that he made to God and said, I know that this is true. I know that the word of God is true. I know that the gospel of Christ is true. I know I need this for my salvation and I will go nowhere else, and I am fully committed, I'm fully resolved to keep this word of God. I will obey it. This is the way one who is truly converted looks at the Bible, looks at the word of God. We don't have that often today. Today, people make very casual commitments. People make very casual professions of faith in Christ. They go about it as though they can decide to do something today, such as, oh yes, I believe, they'll raise their hand, they'll make some kind of fickle commitment to the gospel, but they don't really believe it. They don't want anything to do with it. They don't want any of its obligations. Many times the preachers don't tell them of the obligations, and many times the hearers, if there is an obligation presented, they dismiss it. They say, well, that's for some people who want to be extra religious, but it's not for everybody. I'm just going to take what I can get and walk away. This is the attitude that people have. They don't look at it as a solemn vow to God, that they have made a commitment and that they should keep it. It says in Proverbs 20, 20 verse 6, Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy man? A lot of people give lip service. They give lip service to commitment. They give lip service to being a part of this or that. They give lip service to it. They don't really mean it. They say so, but they don't follow up with it. That's what Solomon meant in Proverbs 20. He meant that a lot of people talk. A lot of people love to talk. They talk, but it does not show up in the way that they live. That's the problem. But not with David. Not with David, and it should not be either with any of us. 2 Timothy 2, 2. 2 Timothy 2, 2. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The Apostle Paul exhorts Timothy to find faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We have four generations 
Paul teaching Timothy, Timothy finding faithful men who will also be able to teach others. Notice there, he's supposed to entrust the truth of the gospel to faithful men. He's supposed to go and search them out. He's supposed to go out there and find them. Where are the faithful men who will be receiving the gospel properly and then explaining it and proclaiming it to others properly? There's very few of them. There's very few of these kinds of people who take what they say seriously. If they say they believe, they truly believe. We have to be among those people. If we're not among those people, it's a matter of life and death. Anybody and everybody can give lip service. There were multitudes of people following Jesus from place to place. Tens of thousands of people following him from place to place because of the miracles he performed. And they loved the designation that they were disciples. And even some of them were called believers. In John chapter 8, they were called believers. But when Jesus pressed them on the matter, pressed them on what they believed, they walked away. And in fact, by the end of John chapter 8, they wanted to put him to death with stones. This is the way that people are. People make fickle commitments to the gospel. We have to make a resolved, solemn commitment. We swear, we believe in it, therefore we should live it. When we do live it, the next verse tells us in Psalm 119, 107, it says, I am exceedingly afflicted. Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. When we make this kind of resolve, we will have affliction. These afflictions will typically come because there are people who will tempt us. There are people who will persecute us. We will come across these afflictions, and these will be exceeding Afflictions. These afflictions will be ones that are extreme. Things that we have never experienced before, we're going to now experience them. Because the people around us will not like us anymore. They'll be against us. They will talk behind our backs. They will slander us. They will set traps for us, as it says in verse 110. The wicked have laid a snare for me. They will set up traps for us, just as they did with Jesus. They would ask them questions to set them up to fail. They would ask the, the apostles questions to set them up to fail. This is what they will do. They will do these kinds of things. However, in the midst of afflictions, in the midst of these things that are clearly going to happen to us, where is our source of revival? Verse 107 says, Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. It's very easy to be focused on the afflictions, to be focused on the words, to be focused on the people, to be focused on the, the, the dire circumstances that we now have. We used to have many friends, now we have few friends. We used to have popularity, we used to have praise and flattery coming from all quarters, but now we have few people who actually appreciate what we say and do. So what should we do? We shouldn't be despondent. We shouldn't be moping and groping. It says in verse 107, Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. Go to the word of God and examine what is happening according to the word of God. Go to the word of God and know what the promises of God are. That we are secure in Christ. That our salvation is secure in Christ. We are indeed believing the right way. And the things that the thing, uh, people are saying all around us do not conform to the Bible. They don't conform to the Bible whatsoever. Therefore, we can 
take consolation from the Word of God. That we're doing what is right. We're doing what is good. We believe in God's promises and He will sustain us with those promises. He will show us many examples of faithful men of the past who were also persecuted, who were also slandered, who also had to deal with the constant irritation of the people around them. Isn't this what happened with Moses? Moses for 40 years... He had to deal with the people. Elijah during his ministry, Elisha during his ministry, they, he, they were, these were faithful men, but they had their detractors and, and slanderers all around them, blaspheming, worshiping idols, threatening to murder them. This was happening all the time in the ministries of these people. We know this is the case with David. In the case with Isaiah the prophet, he also had his persecutors, especially King Manasseh. We had... In the case of Jesus and, the, and his apostles, persecution after persecution after persecution. People all around them afflicting them. But what did they do? They didn't put their hope in the people. They didn't put their hope in this world. They put their hope in the word of God and they were revived by the word of God. They were revived by what God said, what God promised, how God assured them of his presence with them. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? If God is our light and salvation, there should be no fear of anyone ever. Instead, there will be revival. As well, verse 108 says, Oh, accept the freewill offerings of my mouth, O Lord, and teach me your ordinances. There will also be thankfulness. There will also be praise to God and thankfulness. That's what he means by the free will offerings of my mouth. Once I understand who you are, once I understand your promises, I will be thankful that you chose me. I will be thankful that I have been set apart, that you have ordained for me to know you, that you have ordained for me to have these promises, for me to have this hope, for me to have this reconciliation, for me to have this peace. And this will arouse joyful thanksgiving toward God. This is what he says, the free will offerings of my mouth. Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13 and verse 15, the apostle there as well, tells us that that is a characteristic of who we are. He says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips, that give thanks to His name. We know what He's done for us in Christ. Therefore, a proper and right response is to praise God, to thank Him, and to note all the things that He's done. This is the way to avoid bitterness. This is the way to avoid depression and anxiety. When our circumstances are not the way we want them to be, we ought to be thankful for what God has done and what God will do for us. This will keep us keeping a, a right attitude during all of this. An attitude of, of gratitude. Or we may also say ingratitude is an evil attitude. We m must be grateful and thankful for what God has done. And express it. And focus on that. Verse 109. My life is continually in my hand, yet I do not forget your law. And also verse 110. The wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. 
David's life was continually in his hand. He's not exaggerating here. We know this to be the case from the book of 1 Samuel and even 2 Samuel. From 1 and 2 Samuel, David's life was constantly in his hand, meaning it was jeopardized time and again. He had men all around him, both on the outside and also on the inside in his circles of friends and family who were against him. And he had to watch out constantly. They would lay snares, snares for his life, snares about what he said, snares about what he did. Every time, everywhere he looked, there were people against him, constantly against him. They weren't against him because he was sinning against those people. They were against him because he was living righteously and they didn't like it. They didn't want him around. They didn't want him to remind them of their own guilt. They didn't want him around to be a shining and brilliant example of the glory of God changing his life, but their life was not changed. They didn't want that distinction. They didn't want the light to shine on their sin. Therefore, they wanted to get rid of him. If they get rid of him out of sight, out of mind, then they don't have to be guilty and feel guilty day by day because David isn't around. This is what often happens. People will avoid us. People will jettison us. People will even slander us. And in some rare cases, they will seek to put us to death. They will seek to do these things because they cannot tolerate being in our presence. Not because of wickedness, but because of righteousness. Our righteousness and their wickedness. They don't want to be around it. Every time I'm around them, I'm reminded of my sin. That's what goes on in their head. We don't even have to say anything. It's just that we live a certain way and they know we're different. And they hate it. That's why they would lay snares for us and start to work against us. This should not surprise us. Jesus told us in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, that this is what would happen to many of us because of our association with Him. On account of me, on account of my name, they will persecute you. And Peter told us, Do not be surprised about the fiery ordeal among you as though some strange thing were happening. It shouldn't be strange. This will be the common lot. The more we are faithful, the more the world will be against us. In the meantime, we should not forget the law of God and we should not go astray from His precepts. In the meantime, you see, what the devil does is he uses these means to distract and destroy us. He uses these means to make us fall away, to make us not follow after Christ, to make us temporary believers, to make us have a false faith that lasts today and is gone tomorrow. It's fleeting like a vapor that's here momentarily and then it's gone in an instant. That's what he seeks to do in us. We must not do so. We must be resolved not to forget the law of God and not to go astray from that law. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus taught us the parable of the sower. Sower, seed, and soil. And in that parable, he warned us that there would be some people who would have this word temporarily, but they would forget it or they would forsake it. They would walk away from it. Matthew 13, verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. 
When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this was the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word. And the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good ground, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. The first three grounds, the, the roady, the rocky, and the thorny, these three are all temporary people. They forget and they forsake. They forget and they forsake. The evil one, that is the devil in verse 19, takes what was heard, he snatches it away. There it's temporary. Verse 20 and 20 and 21. There we have the rocky places. There there is immediate joy and then there's an immediate falling away. And why? Why is there this immediate joy? Because they didn't really comprehend if the implications of the gospel They didn't really comprehend it. They just heard the words that they wanted to hear. If you believe, you'll have eternal life right now, immediately. If you believe right now, you'll have eternal life. They hear that, and they want it. That's the immediate joy. But then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. The next day, they announce something of that. Hey, listen. Listen, father. Listen, mother. Listen, brother. Listen, sister. Listen, friend. Yesterday I went to this Christian meeting and now I'm a Christian. And what do they do? Their friends or their family mock them. They ridicule them. And they say, well, I thought they would be excited like I am. They're not excited like he was the previous day and that day when he announced it. So they persecute him by ridiculing him, scoffing. And what does he do? He said, I don't want to do, deal with that anymore. I want my friends. I want my family. I don't want to give them up. If they don't like what I just did the previous day, then I'm going, to, I'm going to just walk away from it. So they immediately fall away. And then 22, he says that the thorny ground, they hear the word. The worries of the world, deceitfulness of riches, choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. No fruit there as well. But David... He knows that he should not forget and he should not forsake. And in David's case, he is like that fourth soil that produced some 30, some 60, and some 100 fold. This is what David knows he needs to be. He wants this, and he's teaching us to be the same way. Don't ever forget and don't ever forsake the Word of God. In fact, he speaks of their permanence and their permanent value to him. Psalm 119 verses 111 and 112. Let's see how he speaks of their permanent value for him. Verse 11, 111. I have inherited your testimonies forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. 
He knows that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus said that his words will not pass away, even though this world will pass away. And he knows that the implications of the word of God will last in him forever. In David, they will last forever. That I have an eternal home. I have a place in which righteousness dwells. I have a place where there will be no more death and wickedness and sorrow and pain anymore. I have a place where there will be no presence of sin anymore. That's what he means right here. That's why he's saying, I have inherited this word of God forever. I've inherited the word and all the benefits of that word forever. This is what I have. And it brings him joy. The joy of his heart. He is resolved... He has sworn to keep this word for the rest of his life because he knows there are eternal consequences. We need to recover this too. Very often, we get so entrapped by the things of the world that we don't think about eternity. We think that the eternal things are unseen and therefore they might not be real. The eternal things are unseen, and therefore we easily forget. The, the eternal things are those things that are way in the future, yet to come, many, many years to come, not now. Therefore, let me focus on the here and now. However, the true man of God, he doesn't look at it that way. He thinks about the eternal consequences. He understands that his soul was in jeopardy. He understands that he was hanging in the balance. He understands that he was as though hanging over hell like people hang over Niagara Falls and that anything could trip them up and make them fall into the water. That's the way he looks at his life. And he says, no, I'm not going to live for this world anymore. I know how much I was in jeopardy. Now I realize it. I'm going to live for eternity. I'm going to live for heaven. I'm going to live for the things of God now. And when he thinks of that, he knows of his inheritance. He knows of also the joy that it brings him. It doesn't make him sad. It doesn't make him depressed. He doesn't get anxious. He doesn't twiddle his thumbs and wonder what's going to happen to him. In fact, he has joy in his heart. He has joy or true happiness in his heart that's not ephemeral. It's not temporary. It's not fleeting. Here today, gone tomorrow. It's nothing like that. This joy is a permanent joy. It's the joy of the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruits of the Spirit. This is the fruit that he has. He has this, so he is resolved to keep the Word of God forever. And also, verse 112 says, I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. We have to see here in verse 112, he says he inclines his heart. But we may ask, Is it completely up to him? Is it completely and exclusively up to David? Or is it a work that David is doing for his salvation? Is David working for his salvation when he says, I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes? No, it's neither of those. We may turn to Psalm 119 and verse 36 
119.36, where David prays, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Incline my heart. He prays in verse 36 for God to incline his heart, for God to bend his heart, for God to mold his heart, to make it have a proper stance. He wants God to do it. But he also knows that when God does it, our verse, verse 112, that when God does it, that he is the one acting. He is the one doing it. He is the one working out his salvation with fear and trembling. He knows that it originates with God. The inclination originates with God. But then he is the one who must be carrying it out. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. We must exert effort. We must battle. We must put on the full armor of God. We must act, yes, indeed. But we act based on the grace of God. We act based on the mercy of God to work in us that which is good and right in His sight. So, as believers, let's not be lazy and let's not be distracted. Instead, let us be resolved. Let's tighten our belts Let's put on the full armor of God and let's be active in our mind. Gird your minds for action. 1 Peter 1, 13. Gird your minds for action. This is what we must do. That's what he's asking right here. I have inclined, or expressing, I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever, even to the end. The word of God is not a burden to him. It's not cumbersome. He does not have an extreme load on his shoulders. No, he wants to do it because it brings joy to him. He loves God's word. He wants God's word. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.